Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of the people of the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. He encountered the place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took from the stones of the place which he arranged around his head and lay down in that place, and he dreamt, and behold, a ladder was set earthward and its top reached heavenward, and behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Adonai was standing over him, and he said, I am Adonai, God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac. And the ground upon which you are lying, to you will I give it, and to your descendants. Your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall sprout out powerfully westward, eastward, northward, and southward. And all the families of the earth say all. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and by your offspring. Behold, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go. I will return you to this soil, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have spoken about you. Now Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Adonai is present in this place, and I did not know. And he became frightened and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other, none other than the abode of God, and this is the gate of the heavens. Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he placed around his head and set it up as a pillar. And he poured oil on its top. He named that place Bethel. However, Luz was the city's name originally. Then Jacob took a vow saying, If God will be with me, will guard me on this way that I am going, will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, and I return in shalom to my father's house, and Adonai will be a God to me, then this stone which I've set up as a pillar shall become a house of God, and whatever you give me, I shall repeatedly, say repeatedly, yeah. repeatedly tithe to you. Chapter 29. So Jacob lifted his feet and went towards the land of the Easterners. He looked, and behold, a well in the field, and behold, Three flocks of sheep lay there beside it, for from that well they would water the flocks, and the stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks would be assembled, there they would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. Then they would put back the stone over the mouth of the well in its place. just want to push pause here and say and point out the fact that the reason it says when the flocks were assembled is because it required several men to move that stone. A bunch of guys had to get together. But Captain Israel is about to show up and be like, I can do this all day. Uh. So Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you not know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know. Then he said to him, to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. See, his daughter Rachel is coming with the flock. He said, he said, look, the day is still long. It's not yet time to bring the livestock in. Water the flock and go on grazing. But they said, 
we will be unable to until all the flocks will have been gathered and they will roll the, the stone of the mouth of the well. We will then water the flocks. So again, we, we can't do this yet. We don't, we don't have enough guys here to roll this thing away. It says, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel had arrived with her father's flocks, for she was a shepherdess. And it was when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, he decided to use the best pickup line ever. All these guys are standing around there, and they're waiting for more men to show up. He sees Rachel, and he's like, oh, excuse me, gentlemen. And he just gets up, it says, and Jacob came forward and rolled the stone off the mouth of the well like it wasn't nothing. And watered the sheep of Laban, his mother's brothers. And all the men worshipped him. No, that's not in the Bible. That's not, all, that's not in the Bible. Verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he raised his voice and wept. Oh. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her, her father. And it was when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran towards him, embraced him, kissed him, took him to his house. He recounted to Laban all these events, and Laban said to him, Nevertheless, you are my flesh and blood, and he stayed with him a month's time. Then Laban said to Jacob, Just because you're my relative, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me, what are your wages? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were tender, while Rachel's was beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will work for you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Now Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I give her to another man. Remain with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him a few days because of his love for her. Now Jacob said to Laban, Deliver my wife, for my term is fulfilled, and I will consort with her. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast, and it was in the evening, it's a key factor, that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he consorted with her. Now we're not going to get into this part of the discussion this, this Shabbat, um, because there's a lot in, the, in this, there's a lot of great stuff in this, but I want to just point out that Leah and Rachel are twins. So they have the same size and the same shape. So in a dark evening environment, uh, it would be relatively easy to, uh, you know, make the mistake. But there's a lot more to it. It wasn't just that it was dark. It was actually kind of a, a somewhat of a funny story, actually, but I'll get into that later. It says, And Laban gave her Zilpah, his maidservant, a maidservant to lay his daughter. And it was in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, Such is not done in our place to give the younger daughter before the elder. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one too, for the work which you will perform for me yet another seven years. So Jacob did so, and he completed the week for her, and he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to him as a wife. And Laban Laban, rather, gave Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his maidservant, to her as a maidservant. He consorted also with Rachel and loved Rachel even more than Leah, and he worked for him yet another seven years. Baruch Hashem. Fascinating story. We're, there's a whole lot to talk about, a whole lot to share. So let's go back to the beginning here. 
Before I begin any insights, I meant to say something before I started reading and all that, and that is that I wanted to say a big mazel tov to uh, Michaela back there for graduating from high school yesterday. Baruch Hashem. Amen. Couldn't believe it. I remember when she was just three years old. Uh, Y'all are thinking I haven't known them that long, but I'm talking about Ghana Den. Uh, see? Woo. I go, we go way back. So, uh, yeah, anyway, Mazel Tov. That was wonderful. Baruch Hashem. So, so much to get to. Let me just uh, start off with this kind of as an aside insight that was brought down by Ma'am Loez in relation to a story he was telling in relation to the parasha that we just read. Um, but this is important because uh, it's just a little side note, kind of a little aside, but a lot of people um, say that Yeshua spoke Aramaic. And so Aramaic was the language, the, the lingua franca, as we say at the time. And so when we talk about Hebrew, there's a lot of people that insist that the Messiah spoke Aramaic. And uh, a couple of things about that. I, my personal opinion is that the reason why that is pushed so hard is that it's a form of, of what I would refer as subconscious anti-Semitism. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an innate desire to remove from the Messiah any form of Jewishness. And, they, and so subconsciously, I believe, that there's a spiritual element there as well to remove from him Hebrew. If we can take Hebrew out of his nomenclature, out of his, his persona, then we can make him more Gentile. So making him more Aramaic makes him more Gentile. Of course, people that say this haven't the foggiest idea what Aramaic is. If you put Aramaic and Hebrew next to somebody in front of them who does, don't know anything, they wouldn't know the difference. Um, you can understand what I'm talking about. If you happen to have a chumash, you'll see that there's a Hebrew on the Hebrew page, and then on the left-hand side of the Hebrew, there's another column that says in, in, in Hebrew, Ankylos at the top. And below the Ankylos is text. And if you're looking at your Humus right now, you'll notice that, hey, that looks like Hebrew. It looks like a small print Hebrew of the Hebrew next to the Hebrew. But in fact, that's Aramaic. All right. Um, so did, did Messiah speak Aramaic? Most likely. Just like a lot of rabbis speak multiple languages, right? So it says here in Mamluez, in those days, talking about in the first century, in the days of the Sanhedrin, the days of the second temple, it says in those days it was the custom for the rabbi to speak in Hebrew and for an interpreter to translate into Aramaic, which would serve as the vernacular so that the onlookers, onlookers maybe people who didn't speak Hebrew, would understand what the rabbi was saying. So Mamluez is bringing down a first century account, and that, that's important, right? Historical. A first century account that rabbis taught in Hebrew, but they always had an Aramaic interpreter there. So that everybody could understand in case they couldn't understand. So that settles the argument, doesn't it? All right, so case closed. Thank you. What's that guy's name? Uh, Perry Mason. We just went Perry Mason on that. How many of y'all caught that... Um, uh, that Jacob goes to Be'er, goes towards Beersheba. He went toward Haran. It says he encountered the place. Uh, Zach and Yosef mentioned this um, last week during the announcements that he encounters God. God, one of God's names is Hamakom. One of his names is the place. 
And the reason that God, one of God's names is Hamakom is because God is everything. Right now, we are existing in him. Someone says, I want to be close to God. If you exist, you are. You're in him, literally. Because there's nothing, this is the thing that we have to retrain our minds or think about or maybe even go blue screen on, and that is that, that there's nothing that exists outside of Hashem. So Hashem is existence. That's the very, um, the very concept. It says in Ma'am Moses' commentary, when Jacob was close to Haran, he began to, to think. He's getting close to Haran. He starts thinking to himself, how could I have passed by Mount Moriah where my father Isaac was bound on the altar and where my parents went to pray without worshiping there? So just a little background. When, when Isaac sent Jacob away, he spent the first 14 years. There's an insight in this from Rabbi Monk, I believe, and we'll get to it in a second. But he spent 14 years studying at the house of Ever, of Shimon Ever, and studying in their yeshiva for 14 years, preparing himself to go on this mission. Because he knew uh, he just had a sense that he's going to go into hostile territory, lots of idolatry, and so. He spends 14 years. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because there's lots of people. This is just a life lesson for us. Uh, I have some experience in this. We have people who come into Torah. They come into a place like Sar Shalom or maybe they were someplace else and then they, they, they found us or however that happened. But they're in Torah for just a few years. I mean, just, I mean, just, whoo, man. They just, and they come here. They're here for like two years, three years, maybe four years, man. Whoo, that's a long, that's a long pass. Four years. And they've already surpassed us. They come here. They don't know what the word seat seat means. They don't know how to wear their kippah. And, uh, you know, and they still think biblical kosher is a thing. And then four years later, they're beyond the rabbi. Way beyond. Oh, way beyond. Usually because they have more books than I do. Because, you know, if you've got more books, you have more education. You know, that's how it works, right? It's like, it's like uh, my wife one time told her mother, says my, her mother said she was out of money. She's like, well, you got checks. <laughs> right? Like my, like my daughter, Hadassah, she says she thinks because she has coupons, she has money. She said, take me to Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever because I got, and why? What you going to buy? I got a 20% off coupon. That's not money, honey. <laughs> but she said, you got the money, honey. I got the time. <laughs> so that doesn't work like that. But I want you to think about some. How many people out there, they've been in Torah five minutes and they, and they got a website now. They're teaching. They're out in exile in the thick of idolatry teaching. Now, and I want you to contrast that with Jacob. Jacob, who grew up in Isaac's house. How many of their parents out there? Raise your hand if your daddy ever went to Mount Moriah and laid his life down on the altar to be sacrificed. Anybody out there? Who's out there? Raise your hand. Anybody? No. He's the only one who got a daddy who went to lay on the altar to sacrifice himself to God. And, and, and by the way, had, had the fragrance of Ganadin all around him and everything, Right? Whose who's grandfather out there, whose grandfather out there was Abraham? Anybody who's, who's out there, granddaddy's great Abraham? Anybody? No? 
No? Okay. So here you have Jacob, and he's like, okay, that's, that's on the level he's at. And even still, when he went to go find a wife, he didn't feel prepared enough to deal with the exile. So he decided he needed another 14 more years in yeshiva. And by the way, I, I would bet you, I'm just going to bet, I'm not a betting man unless I go to a casino, but I would bet that he never told Eber or Shem that he surpassed them. I bet those words never came out of his mouth. How many, how many of you think that? Ugh. Get up, push in your chair. Gentlemen, I thank you for these 14 years. When I came here, I knew basically nothing. And now that I've been here, I realize that I now know more than y'all. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Let it sink in. Um, so anyway, the point being is that's, that was on the level he wanted to go find a wife, and that's where that's how he, he studied. By the way, do you, I'm just, I don't, not to get hung up on the surpass thing, but it is kind of arrogant. Do you realize we never surpass anything? The moment that I think I know something, I realize I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't even surpass myself. So it says here, when Jacob was close to Haran, he began thinking, how could I have passed by Mount Moriah? Now, it wasn't that he was at the yeshiva and he just passed by, but the sages bring down that the yeshiva of Shem was actually in Jerusalem. Keep in mind, Shem is Melchizedek. He's the priest of, most, of God Most High in Salem. That's where he went to Yeshiva, was in Jerusalem. So he, there he is in Jerusalem at Yeshiva this whole time and never goes to Mount Moriah. And then he's off to Haran. He's almost to Haran. And he realized, whoa, wait a minute. How could I have done that? I didn't even go to where my father lay down. And by the way, when the, his father and mother were praying to have a, a baby, they went to Mount Moriah and prayed there. So it says he immediately decided to return to the sacred mountain. And as soon as he started back, God shortened his way. And he immediately found himself near the mountain. The life lesson in that is that we could be, have made a mistake. We could have made an error. We had passed over uh, something we were supposed to do. But the minute we go, man, I, should, I can't remember what I was thinking about. It. I should have done that. God is right there, able, able and willing to help us accomplish it quickly. Someone says, well, I've been sinning all this time, and I've been, I've been messing up and been failing, and it's going to take me years. I mean, I'm almost, I'm almost to Haran. I'm almost to hell. It's, and I'm away, way, working my way back to you, baby. Way back to Mount Moriah, way over there. It's going to take me days to get back there. And God says, no, here, I got this. There you are. So we were talking about this last night that when, remember the story of the disciples, they were in the boat and they were rowing. It was a heavy wind and heavy waves and they, they were just rowing and they weren't going anywhere. And all of a sudden, here comes Yeshua walking out on the water. And then there's the episode where, he, where Peter says, call me and I'll come walk out on the water with you. 
Everybody gets on Peter. Oh, he was so silly. Oh, look, he just got out there. He was just so presumptuous. Who else? Did anybody else volunteer to get out of the boat? Chickens. So you can say all you want to about Peter and his whatever, but he, Peter can actually say, he's the only one who can say, I actually did walk on water <laughs> for a little bit. He's the only one who can say that. Paul didn't walk. The Paul, I mean, he record, let's see. Paul walked on water anywhere? Mm-mm, no, sure didn't. No, I'm not. He's the only one. Only two people in the world could say they walked on water. That's Yeshua and, and Kepha. But anyway, I digress. But nobody talks about the fact that once it says, once that whole episode finished and he grabbed them and said, oh, ye little faith, as soon as Yeshua stepped in the boat, they were on the other side like that. As soon as he, and so you think, well, that was really cool. That was a neat, neat trick. No, it goes back to Hashem. As soon as he met Hamakom, they were, they were back at Mount Moriah. So it says here, God shortened his way. God shortened Eliezer's journey from Hebron to Haran in a similar manner as we saw in Hayeser. Remember that? They took off and boom, by the evening time they were there, it was like the express train. Yeah. So it's actually, it says the Academy of Shem and Eber was located in Jerusalem, very close to Mount Moriah. Why did God not provide Jacob with a sign that he should worship on the holy mountain before he left? You think that God would have said, turn to the mountain. He didn't say that. That sounded like Boris Korloff. That was, that was not, <laughs> that was not like the, sorry. Uh, turn to the mountain. Was, sorry. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh. My wife loves my humorous. It's Jacob moved to rock. I told jokes. When it comes to religion, <laughs> when it comes to religion, a person must make his own effort to do good. Once he begins, he is helped from on high. But if he makes no effort at all, he loses that opportunity. One is not told to keep the commandments since each individual has complete free will. So, uh, isn't that interesting? God helps, you know, the, so the old adage of God helps those who help themselves, people say, well, that's not in the Bible. Actually, it kind of is. That as long as we are not seeking to turn to God, he doesn't really help us. But the moment we start seeking to turn to him, he gives us all the support we need to make that happen. So it says, it says, because Jacob had passed by Mount Moriah without even stopping momentarily to say a short prayer, he was not given a sign to do so from on high. When he reached Haran, he became concerned and wished to return. Not only did he not receive a divine sign, but God arranged for him to be able to return miraculously. Jacob thus went from Beersheba to Haran, and from there he returned to Mount Moriah to worship. He went, then went back to Haran the entire long jury journey was accomplished in a very, very short time. So he gets there, and, and I contend that one of the reasons he wanted to go to that place to begin with, and he goes there to lay down. And it wasn't just because it was nighttime. Of course, there's a whole discussion here, by the way, about the three times of prayer, but we won't, we won't get into that. But he goes there, and he, he lays down, and... and some versions say that he took a rock and, and put it under his head. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping. I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of 
primitive, primitive camping, okay? Thing on your backpack, up the mountain, pitch a tent overnight, hike back, hike back down, all the Civil War reenacting, all that. I have never used a rock as a pillow. Just a rock I'm talking about. I've used a saddle as a pillow. I've used my backpack as a pillow. I've used my jacket as a pillow. I've used lots of things as a pillow. Never a rock. Do you know why? Because it hurts. <laughs> you use a rock for about a few seconds laying on it, and you're going to have a, a bruise on your head, and you're, it's not going to be comfortable. So he wasn't using the rock as a pillow. That's what a lot of people say in, in, in uh, non-Jewish commentaries. Oh, he, so he put a rock as a pillow. And it's like these people have never been out of their study room. <clears throat> they go fishing at the fishing, at the fish counter. So, why? And notice it says that he put rocks around him. Why did he do that? Well, the the commentary brings down that he actually took stones that were still there from his father's altar. So he saw the oh man, that just gave me chills when I said that. He saw the altar that his father and grandfather had made, and he took those stones and laid them around himself. Why? Because he was saying, Hashem, I just want you to know that inasmuch as you did, you commanded my dad, but inasmuch as you commanded my dad, I'm willing. Whew, well, that feels good. And notice that later it says that he took the stone. First it says stones, but then later it says he took the stone. Why? Because all the stones became one stone. And he set that stone up, and that stone became the house of God. In my personal opinion, the Ram Bell brings down that it was that stone that followed us around the wilderness. But that's a Ram Bell, so I like it. So we have so much in this. Where do we begin? Let me go back to Rabbi Monk here and share a few insights. Um, I'll tell you what, before I do that, let me share this just quick thing here. We see the episode of, we're going to get to this later, not so much today, but the episode of, of Jacob seeing Rachel and he weeps. He kisses her and weeps. And uh, a lot of people read that and they think that was very romantic. He kissed her. He wept. I love you so much. But he had just moved a stone away that like weighed I don't know how much. He's a man's man, you know. He's weeping because he wants to marry Rachel, but he has nothing. He realizes he's, 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 he realizes that he's, he's found, he thinks, the woman that he wants to be his wife. He only went for one, okay? He only was showing, he was only coming to buy one. And he sees the woman he wants, but he realizes he doesn't have anything. He, there's no dowry money. He has nothing. Which is why he ends up having to work for his uncle and his uncle says, i got to pay you something. What's your wages? Anybody ever stop to think that when Eliezer went to go find Rebekah, that Abraham had sent him with ten camels laden down with treasure, which means there was other, a whole entourage. It wasn't just Eliezer. It was a whole entourage of people. He showed up. He's like hitting her with bracelets and nose rings. He's throwing some bills on the counter. You know, he's throwing some diamonds out. Got more where that came from. You know, look at that Rolex, look at that, uh-huh, get you some. My master, man, he owns Choctaw and the Blue Thunder Casino. Mm. Yeah, 
Windstar, chump change. My, he said, my, dad, my, 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 my master owns Caesar Palace. You know, so listen. So how is it that Isaac, who that, that's how it went down for him, how is it that Isaac is going to send his son to go get a wife with nothing? That doesn't even make sense. Son, go forth and get a wife. All right, can I have, a, can I have some, some bills, Dad? Because, you know, women cost money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mossel said, here's a coupon. Yeah. <laughs> here's a 20% offer. Yeah. Woo. So here's how it went down. This is why he was crying. And I hate, to, I hate to bust the romantic bubble, but he was crying for another reason other than love. It says, when Jacob was leaving Beersheba, Esau summoned his son Eliphaz and gave him strict instructions. Take your sword, intercept Jacob on the road, do away with him and hide his body in the mountains. He said, you will then be able to take all his wealth that he has with him and return home. No one will be the wiser. So this indicates that Jacob had a lot of wealth, and he did. He had a bunch of money that he had left with, not only his own wealth, but also wealth that his parents had given him. So it says, at the time, Eliphaz was 13 years old. Like his father, he had matured very early and was already a powerful, already powerfully built. He was a champion warrior. He took 10 of his men with him and intercepted Jacob, his uncle, in the mountain pass near Shechem. Seeing strangers approach at the distance, Jacob waited to see what they wanted. That's how all bad Western stories start. Paul, men are coming. See what they want, boy. (laughs) Next thing you know, they're dead. And John Wayne has to come fix it. All right. He says, Eliphaz and his men surrounded Jacob with drawn swords. Are you off to war? Asked Jacob. Why are you so heavily armed? Why why are you doing, what are you doing in this area? I'm under orders from my father, replied Eliphaz. I dare not disobey him. So Jacob realized his dangerous predicament. He tried to figure a way out of it. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you all my possessions, he told Eliphaz. Both what I myself have and what my parents have given me, just spare my life. You will have obeyed your father's orders since, a man, since when a man is destitute, it is as if he were dead. Which, by the way, can I just add a little sidebar comment here. We've just read this in the Torah, or in the, in the yeah, it comes from the oral Torah, that poverty is likened to death. So everybody is out there, and people are concerned about a virus that has a 98% survival rate, and they're concerned about dying, so therefore they're shutting down all businesses, and people are becoming destitute. This is why experts say, and rightfully so, and this is Torah true, that poverty is worse than a virus because it causes more death. You say, well, you're not dead. At least you're alive, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Anybody been dead broke before? Why do you think they call it dead broke? I've been dead broke. And sometimes when you're dead broke, you'd rather wish you were dead. And you say, that's not true, Rabbi. You're a liar. You've never been dead broke. I've been there. 
And this is how you win friends and influence people. God made Eliphaz have pity on Jacob, and he agreed. He took everything that Jacob had, even his food, and returned home, leaving Jacob totally empty-handed. When Eliphaz related what had happened, Esau was was furious that he had spared Jacob's life. But when Esau realized that Jacob had been left with nothing but the clothes on his back, he calmed down. When a man has nothing, he is no better than dead. So this is why he wept, because when he found Rachel, uh, he's like, I, yeah. See, here's the thing. I want you to be my wife, see, but, well, do you like what I have on? Because <laughs> it's all I have. <laughs> Whatever I have, I give to you, my dear, which is pretty much what you see. So he had to go to work for Rachel for seven long years. And um, a lot of times we don't, we don't think about um, uh, those kinds of things. Think about that. For seven years he, he worked. Seven years is a long time. He worked for seven years thinking he was going to get Rachel. But that's why he went. Going back to the place, Hamakom, it says he dreamt. Rabbi Eliezer brings down to chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, many interpretations are given to this dream consistent with the concept mentioned in the preceding verse that Jacob prayed in the place of the future sanctuary where his forefathers had also prayed and where prayers rise to heaven. So it says the latter Jacob saw in his dream represents the ascent of prayer towards the celestial spheres. The angels rose up from the earth carrying the supplications of men to the celestial throne and then come back down again laden with heavenly blessings. The scripture refers to this place, Mount Moriah, as the gate of heaven, and that is exactly what it is. The sages bring down that the, the uh, celestial temple is directly, was situated directly above the earthly temple, like a parallel universe, if you will. And it was separated only by, they say, 18 miles. Whether that's little or not is up for debate, but the the point being is that it's a relative short distance. This is why the sages say that when you go to Jerusalem and pray, it's as if you're literally praying at the gate of heaven. And all of our prayers, if you think about it this way, every time we pray, they go out to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, and up from there. That's how the flow of your prayer goes. Another uh, exegesis here from verse 13, it says, and uh, verse 13, Behold, Adonai was standing over him, and he said, I am Adonai, God of Abraham your father, and God of Isaac, the ground upon which you are lying. To you will I give it, and to your descendants. This little drop that I want to point out is one of those uh, things that I would say would or should cause somebody who believes in the Noahide slash Messianic Gentile theology to have a little bit of pause. Let me read the inside, and we'll discuss it. It says, and behold, Adonai was standing over him. Now, Rashi says to protect him. Ramban, who also takes the preposition alav as referring to Jacob and not the latter, interprets this thought more explicitly. The prophetic dream revealed to Jacob that all terrestrial life is governed by intermediating forces, that is, angels of God, which, after drawing their sustenance from the supreme being... Notice that they draw their sustenance from who? 
the supreme being. So they, they actually feed, if you will, feed on the divine presence. And after they've received their sustenance, they descend to enrich the lower world. Jacob and his offering, offspring, Jacob and his offspring are the only, say only, only. the only ones not, say not, not, not entrusted to the hands of the agents of the Creator. Now, Jacob and his offspring are the Jews. The house of Jacob includes, of course, converts because converts are also Jews inasmuch as born Jews are Jews. And as I said on the Aliyah day, if there wasn't for converts, there couldn't be Jews to begin with. So you say, well, a convert goes to Judaism. That's true, but originally it was a convert who brought Judaism into being. That's the full circle. But if you're a Noahide or a Messianic Gentile, then the problem is you say, well, I, know I have a covenant. Yeah, but it's saying here in Jewish literature, Jewish thought, that you are under the hands of an angel, whereas Jews are under the direct hand of God. That's the difference. It's not, in other words, it's not the same covenant. Noahide and Messianic Gentile theology is a socialistic theology. What is socialism at its root? Socialism at its root is, I want all the benefits without any of the responsibility. So the theology of Messianic Gentilism and Noahidism is socialistic. So if you are, if you're somebody who is real in your theological, or excuse me, in your political mind, if you're very much into communism slash socialism, you will love that theology, because you get all the benefits and have none of the responsibility. No need to go to work; they'll send you a check. But if you believe in freedom and responsibility, reward and punishment. You know, get you get you get uh, you get on the A A B honor roll or the A honor roll if you actually have A's. <laughs> then you won't you'll understand what I'm talking about here. It says it is God Himself who stands over Jacob to protect him at all times and to save him from evil forces. For the Jewish people are Hashem's portion. Jacob is the measure of his inheritance. This concept, concept mirrors the Talmudic statement, Shabbat 156a, that Jewry, that is Jews, are not subject to the blind laws of natural destinies. Jews are under the immediate protection of the master of the universe. Notice it says Jews, though. You say, well, I know that. I know it says that, Rabbi, but I still believe. I believe. I believe I can fly. I believe. That I can still not be a Jew and still say ex ne nine aparte with the angelae. <laughs> I still want to have all those benefits of being on. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Why are we in exile? Another insight from Rabbi Monk. He said, for the first time in, in the life of Jacob, this is the first time that he's personally addressed by divine speech. By the way, it says when he's on the mountain talking to God at this night that he's, he's not operating in prophecy. Do you know why they say he's not operating in prophecy, that God has to speak to him in a dream? He, he, he's not able to speak to him face to face like he did Abraham and like he did Isaac. Because it says he appeared to Isaac and said what he said, and he appeared to Abraham, right? But here it says it's a dream. Why is it a dream and not a direct a direct 
appearance? The answer is, is that he's not yet married. Marriage is a prerequisite for prophetic direct revelation. Selah. So it says, for the first time in Jacob's life, he's personally addressed by divine speech as just as with Abraham, his, this first revelation takes place just as he gave up a peaceful existence. Now, pause. I just thought into my brain. <laughs> There's an entire religion out there. You know the one I'm about to say that the priest that you're supposed to be receiving divine revelation from refused to be married. Selah. So it says, God invests the family of Abraham with a mission. God invests the family of Abraham with a mission which is destined, say destined. Destined to be accomplished above all in exile. To be Jewish means to remain faithful to God while in the midst of other nations. So everybody would love to move to Israel, right? Live there permanently. I mean, it's beautiful. But the reality is that the sages bring down the reason we're in exile is to bring the nations into the covenant. And this is why we find with all three of the patriarchs who were super-duper heavy into, into evangelism, they all lived in exile. And then you have Joseph, who lived in exile in Egypt. And then you have Moses, who never, ever entered the promised land, Ever. All, all five, I'll do my math there. All five of those people were all heavy into bringing people in the covenant. That's, they, their whole life was about that. Don't forget Moses, that when everybody was out collecting diamonds and silver and gold because they said, go get the riches of Egypt, empty the riches of Egypt, Moses' interpretation of that was, that's souls. So while everybody else was knocking on doors saying, can I have that china set that I saw in your back room over there? It was, you, it was dark. You couldn't see. You were scared. I wasn't. It's was over there. <laughs> Meanwhile, Moses was like, would you like to go with us and believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or you can stay here and die. <laughs> it was a great pitch. <laughs> Joseph told people that, yes, I'll sell you grain. A hundred percent. It'd be wonderful. You're going to love it. It's the best ever. It comes from Saginaw. I just require this one little kind of thing. I need you to get circumcised and become converts to Judaism, okay? And they were like, okay. And they did. So that's how, because he believed that he had been sent there to bring people into covenant. Why? Now, think about this for a second. Why did Moses and why did Josh, Joseph think that? Because obviously they knew that was God's heart. All right, we got time for a couple more? Sure we do. A couple more. 
I am Adonai, the God of Abraham, your father. So this is the next, the next uh, quote in, in this verse, the revelation to Jacob. It says, this case is exceptional in the Torah, where it says, Ani Adonai Elohei Avraham Avika. It's, it's exceptional, Rabbi Monk points out, because Abraham is Jacob's grandfather, but God makes a point to say to him that I am the God of your father, Abraham. Now, a couple things with this. Everybody says, well, in order to be a Jew, you've got to come from the tribe of Judah. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. A Jew is a name, it doesn't matter what tribe you come from, but this verse right here teaches us that Jacob gets his Jacobness, his Jew, Jewishness from Abraham. The source is Abraham. Now, what's further remarkable is that it says this form of address makes it clear to Jacob that Abraham is his spiritual father, Isaac being only the link that connects the two. So, in other words, to, from Jacob, you have Abraham. But the connection, the one that brings those two things together is the son who was the image of the father that laid his life down on the altar for the forgiveness of our sins. This is why conversion is what it is. Because you are able to convert to the life and the family of Abraham vis-a-vis Messiah Yeshua because he is the link that takes you from where you are and cuts you back into the family of Abraham. With that, no, one more. Okay, don't be scared. Don't be scared. By the way, I mentioned the marriage thing a second ago. It says here that why was why was Jacob scared? He he. Um, He's been in the house of Shimon Ever for 14 years. He's a good boy. Actually, I say boy. By this time, he's like 60-some-odd years old. We think about Jacob when he went in to get his father's blessing. We think of him, at least I do, we think of him like this teenage boy, and his dad, his mother's kind of wrapping some, you know, skin on him, and he feels all sheepish. Um. But in actual fact, he was 63 when all that went down. So it just puts things in perspective. So it says he felt that he was imperfect, and that's why he was scared. He was so he was frightened there on the mountain. He felt that his imperfection was due to his unmarried state, because of which he could not aspire to a more perfect divine revelation. Then he cried out, how awesome is this place. This is none other none other." in the abode of God, the, the gate of God. And Rabbi Monk brings down that Jacob was the first to affirm that God is to be sought out first and foremost in the family and in the home. In other words, it says that Jacob leaves his parents' house to, fu- to found a Jewish home and brings with him, by circumstance anyway, nothing else. So it says that he's the first one with this revelation 
that the faith has to be centered uh, on the home. It says he was the one who conceived the idea of a house of God, meaning that the most important and closest place of divine manifestation is the place where human souls blossom and flourish, where man contributes what he himself in order to, is, is, is ordered to build, and that is a house of God. Now, I want to share, speaking, because we're going to kind of end on the topic of, of marriage, uh, kind of a funny story from the Midrash Rabbah. By the way, it talks about, in the Midrash Rabbah, there's a wonderful uh, insight about God doing the matchmaking. And one of the reasons that God is the ultimate matchmaker, and he's the one who chooses this one shall be your wife and this one shall not be your wife or whatever, is because when a man takes a wife, that, that, that completes him, as it were, right? So the man, the, the feminine soul has to be part of the man. And so that's an act of creation the sages bring down, and God is the creator. So when man puts uh, marriages together, excuse me, when God puts marriages together, it's an act of creation. So it says in the Midrash Rabbah 68, Simon 4, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. Rabbi Yehuda bar Simeon began his discourse on the passage with the following verse, God settles the solitary into a family, Psalm 68, 7. The Midrash records an incident that demonstrates how marriages are arranged through divine providence. So there was a certain matron who posed a question to Rabbi Yose bar Halafta. She said to him, in how many days did the Holy One, blessed be he, create the world? Rabbi Yose said to her, in six days, as it is written, for in six days Adonai made the heavens and the earth. Exodus 20, verse 11. Whereupon she said to him, with what is he occupied from that time until now? Rabbi Yose said to her, the Holy One, blessed be he, sits and makes matches, declaring the daughter of so-and-so is destined for so-and-so. The wife of so-and-so is destined for so-and-so. The money of so-and-so is destined for so-and-so. She said to him, is this his craft? I can do this. I have many slaves and many maidservants, and in short time I can match them all together. So Rabbi said to her, although it seems easy in your eyes, know that it's his it is as difficult before the Holy Blessed Be He as splitting the sea of reeds. Rabbi Yosef Bar Halafta then left her presence. So what did she do? She took 1,000 slaves and 1,000 maidservants and stood them in rows. And she said, such and such slave will marry such and such maidservant, and such and such maidservant will in fact marry such and such slave. And thus she matched them up in just one night. The following day, they all came to her. This one's head was cracked. <laughs> that one's eye was gouged out. Another leg was broken. She said to them, what happened to you? And the maidservant said, I do not desire that slave. And that slave said, I do not desire that maidservant. Immediately, she sent a message and brought Rabbi Yosef Bar Halafta, and she said to him, there is no God like your God. <laughs> Baruch Abba, Bashem Adonai. Amen, amen. <laughs>